We are still in the book of Romans. We will be in the book of Romans maybe till Jesus returns. I don't know. We're just getting started here, folks. We're only in chapter 2, verses 5 through 29 this morning. I'm actually taking a really big chunk of scripture. I don't usually take this much at one time, but it kind of all ties together because it's, well, basically it's kind of from Paul. I have to tell you, preaching through the Word of God verse by verse, when you just take a book and you go at it verse by verse, is very different than preaching subjects, where you know you have a new different subject every week and you kind of pick your way through whatever that you're doing, whether it's a series of some sort or not. With preaching through the Word of God week after week, just taking it as it comes, you have to deal with all the verses. You have to deal with all of the themes. You have to deal with all of the issues. You don't get to just gloss over things. You know, and sometimes I come to the Word of God, and, and, and I come to Sunday morning, and, and I've, I'm just excited about preaching what I find in the Word of God. And sometimes it's a little harder than that. Sometimes it's maybe not quite so exciting to deal with a passage. This morning's kind of like that. It's not a terribly exciting passage. It's almost kind of a sobering section of the Word of God. It's one that's meant to make us think and think deeply. A man once hired his his new son-in-law to build him a house. The man told his son-in-law that the house was going to be a surprise for his wife for their 30th anniversary and he didn't want him to spare any expense in building it. The son-in-law, well, he was really a cheap man who made his living pretty much ripping people off. He's one of those good contractors. And his mother-in-law really, she didn't really like him all that much, didn't think he was all that good for her daughter. So he was really going to enjoy getting a lot of money from them while he did everything just as cheaply as he could. He charged his father-in-law for all the best equipment, lumber, roofing, plumbing, and anything else he could think of, while he only used the cheapest, even secondhand materials he could find. When the house was finished, he took the keys to his father-in-law, who then handed the keys back to him and said, this house is my wedding present to you and my daughter. (laughs) You know, one day we're all going to be rewarded according to every work every word that comes out of us. This morning in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 29, this passage talks about the subject of reward, but its true theme is actually much larger than that. It's really about the condition of our hearts. Out of the heart flows our actions. Out of the heart flows our words. Whether we know the commandments of Scripture or whether we're ignorant of them, our heart is still the thing that dictates how we live. Paul uses the Jews and the Gentiles as his template for explaining this issue. The Jews had the commandments of God. They were schooled in them from the time that they were little children. If they broke the commandments, they couldn't use ignorance as an excuse. In fact, the law would actually condemn them. If the non-Jew broke the law, then they would be punished even without the law, Because as Paul explained earlier in chapter 1, we really don't have an excuse. Whether we've had the law or not, everything is clear that God exists and that we owe him our existence. By the same token, if the Jew kept the law, 
then they would be blameless before the law. If the non-Jew, not having the law, not knowing the law, still managed somehow to keep the law, then they became a law unto themselves, the law having been written on their hearts. It comes down to this one thing. Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, it was about the condition of your heart, how you saw God and how you responded to him. Let's read the passage together. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness. Now get, get this. The but because is because of what, what came before this, what I talked about last week, where people were judging other people and not even thinking about the sin in their own lives. We talked about this at a kind of length last week, so I'm not going to go into it this week. Uh, the idea being here, none of us have the right to judge anyone else, okay? Just period end, it, it, just is, it, it, it should never happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, I'm just saying it shouldn't happen in the kingdom of God. That's where this kind of picks up. He really hasn't changed subjects, okay? He's still kind of talking about that in this first verse here. But because of your stubbornness, stubbornness in judgment, stubbornness in holding things against people, and your unrepentant heart, obviously for the sins that they had committed, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and you brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will not be regarded 
as though they, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision, you're a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is one only if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. There is a tendency to look at this passage of Scripture and declare that, that Paul is talking about the Jews versus the Gentiles or non-Jews. That's what a Gentile is, okay? Somebody who's not Jewish. And then we dismiss it as being not, well, very relevant to us. It's not applicable. That's not really the case, though. It's really about the believer versus the non-believer. And so it actually does apply to us. He's just couching it in terms of a Jew and a Gentile, one schooled in the things of God and one ignorant of the things of God a believer versus a non-believer. The overall theme being the condition of the heart. I want to start this morning with the first thing I see, and that's about what is stored in the heart. Before we go there, let's stop and pray. Heavenly Father, as difficult as this subject is, because it's in your word, it's necessary for us to look at this morning. It's necessary for us to take this journey And I believe that this journey is not a mistake, that you have us in the book of Romans for a really good reason, Father. This is exactly where we need to be at this time if we're going to become the church that brings the light of Christ into this community. We need to be schooled in this. We need to understand our place in this. So, Father, I pray that you give us those eyes to see and ears to hear this morning more than anything, hearts to receive so that we will understand and own these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins this section of Scripture with what is stored or held in the heart. It is out of the heart that a person acts. Now, when we're talking about the heart, we're not just talking about your emotions, although in our Western culture, the heart is really the seat of our emotional life. In fact, That's what Valentine's is all about, right? All those cutesy little hearts and stuff. It's all about emotion, right? In Paul's thinking, the heart is more than just your emotional center. It is the place that governs your thinking as well as your doing. Verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself against the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Basically, Paul is saying that the heart governs your response to life. If your heart is set stubbornly on your sin, then you will reap the harvest that your sin desires. You get that? If your heart is stubbornly set on your sin, then you will reap the harvest that your sin desires. In other words, you'll get what you want. I've been saying this over and over again. You get the life you choose, right? You will get what you want if that's where your heart wants to be, if you stubbornly pursue. That's what he's talking about, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. Hasn't really left the discussion from last week 
Last week, it was about those who know the will of God. They know what is right. They know what is righteous. They know what is good. They know what is honorable, but still stand in judgment of those who sin when, in fact, they're nothing more than sinners themselves. Paul's point is that we're not allowed to judge anyone, even if there's the smallest little bit of sin in our lives. And that, folks, is a heart issue. It's what we have stored up in our heart. I talked about the issue of judging one another last week, and if you missed it, grab a CD, okay? They're on the back table. I will only say this about that subject. I believe with all my heart, because the Scripture bears this out, that when we do that, when we judge one another, when we set ourselves up as gods over one another by casting judgment, I believe it breaks the heart of God. After all, he knows completely the depth of my sin. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows just how black the kettle is that condemns the pot. And it's not a pretty picture. I believe it breaks his heart. Not just that, but he knows where all this self-exalting pride that comes from people who judge will eventually lead us. And it's not a good place. It's a dark place. Both are listed in verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those that are self-seeking and who reject truth and follow evil, there will be two things, wrath and anger. I want you to see both sides of this, though. It's not just about the people who are continuing in their sin, okay? who continue to judge other people, who continue to, to hold those things against other people. He, Paul also includes the good with the bad here, the right direction along with the, the direction not to take. First, to those who do right and who do so with persistence. In other words, it's not an occasional thing, okay? It's a lifestyle, a lifestyle of doing right before God, living right before God. There is what Paul calls a reward here. There is glory, honor, and immortality, and eternal life. Please understand, this doesn't mean that doing good will get you saved, okay? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul makes that very clear later on, Romans uh, 6.23. He'll say it very clearly, that we don't get saved by our good works, lest any man should boast, okay? We're saved by grace through faith. He's not saying that that gets you saved. You cannot in any way, shape, or form earn eternal life. It's a gift from God. What it means is that those who have eternal life will persist in doing good. If your heart has been turned towards God, you will persist in good things. And as you do, you will receive the reward of such a life. You will receive glory, which is recognition by others. You will receive honor, which is praise by others. You will receive immortality, which is really an interesting word here. It actually is an unending genuineness or integrity, sincerity of life. In other words, you'll be the same inside as you are on the outside. Does that make sense? I find it interesting that the, that part really comes down to this one thing. Immortality expressed in legacy. Everybody know what legacy is? Legacy is what you leave behind, right? 
When you're gone, the ripple effect of your life, what will it look like? That is your, your legacy. That is your immortality. It is the genuineness, the integrity of your life that will live on after you, still affecting other people down through the ages. Can you imagine Paul's legacy? I, you know, I'm intrigued by that. Paul's legacy is amazing because we're still reading about him, aren't we? 2,000 years later, he's still being used of God to change people's lives. What a legacy. I want my legacy to last that long, okay? How do I do that? By persistence in doing good. By persistence in the path that God has chose for me to do what God has asked me to do, to live a life of righteousness and holiness before you, that the legacy that I give to you lives on after me. That's the idea. That's the reward that he's talking about. Why is that even important in terms of reward? Because there is a final judgment coming, folks, for the believer and the non-believer. The separating of the wheat from the tares. Jesus will take the good, okay, and he will discard the bad. And our lives will be judged, but not in the way of a non-believer. The way of the non-believer will be judged on his own merit, and he will fall short no matter how good he is, okay? But our lives will be judged on the merit of he who died for us, right? Our lives, the believer's life, will be judged based on one thing and one thing only, good works. That's how your life will be judged. Now, I want you to understand this really carefully because it's really important that you do. The good works that you will be judged by are not the good things that you conceive of and do in your own strength and own power, okay? They will be the things where you surrender yourself to God and allow God to work through you because they will be eternal fruit. That's what will be born, eternal fruit. When you surrender your, yourself to Jesus and you let Jesus work through you, despite maybe your fear, despite maybe your exhaustion, whatever, when you surrender yourself to God and let God work through you, that will be rewarded. The cool thing about our rewards, and, and I love this part, the cool thing about our rewards is that all we did was surrender in order to get them. Really, seriously, we surrendered to cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then God who does the work anyway, because we can't save anybody, we really can't help anybody on our own strength and our own power. God, who does all the saving and the helping and all that kind of stuff, says, guess what? Here's your reward. Here's what you get. Isn't this cool? And you know what? The only proper response will be to that. We will be like the 24 elders that stand before the throne of God and cast their crowns before him. So all the crowns, all the rewards you get, it's going to glorify God just all the more, all the more, all the more. And when we do that, it's going to be the greatest worship service ever. Unending worship before God, because we will stand in his presence and we'll be shocked and awe of who he is for us for the rest of eternity. And we'll get to discover the depths of all that. So, it is so cool. I don't know how to say it any better than that. This is what we get as we persist in those good words. 
So, are we, am I saying that we're, we're to seek glory, honor, and immortality in this life? No. At least no in, in, as it means in a self-promoting way, okay? I'm doing all these things for God because, you know, I want to have crowns when I get to heaven. Guess what? That's self-promoting. That isn't going to do it. I want to do all these things for God because he's called me to them, and I'm going to sacrifice myself on the altar as a living sacrifice to him to see him work through me because this is the best that I can do. And then he picks it up, and he makes it something incredible. It is about him, even though he makes it about us. Verse 8, I think, makes that pretty clear, folks. But for those who are self-seeking, self-promoting, okay, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Our motives are important. They really are. If we do good to others out of selfish motives, to gain glory, honor, and a legacy, then we're really only engaged in self-promotion. That, according to Jesus, is hay, wood, and stubble, which will be burned up and not rewarded, because we did it in our own strength, our own power, for our own motives. At best, Jesus says that people who do that will have all the reward they're ever going to get right here, right now. At worst, it speaks of a subject that most people don't want to hear about, and that's God's judgment. Listen, this passage is really clear. There is an accounting of every person's deeds. I know that there are a whole lot of people in the kingdom of God these days that, that don't want to preach about hell and eternal punishment They don't even want to believe that those places exist and those things happen. But the Bible is very, very, very clear. As is our text this morning, there is an accounting. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The outcome of God's accounting of our lives is really simple. Either we are reconciled to God or we are estranged from him. It really is all about relationship. If we're in love with Jesus, then good will flow out of our lives. The result will be a life of glory, honor, and legacy. If what we store up in our hearts is self-promoting, then only anger, wrath, trouble, and distress will be found according to this passage. Now, no one gets to judge your heart but God. Not going to go there, okay? Listen to me carefully. There's only two people that can judge your heart. That's you and God. And he expects you to do it for yourself. I'm not going to do it for you. That's not my job, okay? It actually, according to Scripture, is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, okay? So it's really between you and and the Holy Spirit, between you and God. Do this for yourself. If you find that you're focused more on yourself than you are on others, then you probably need to spend a little time in front of a mirror dealing with you, okay? Dealing with where your motives are, where your heart is. Because if you don't, the Holy Spirit is going to move you in front of that mirror. And that's not always a gentle thing to behold. Scripture is very clear about this. God is a loving God, and as a loving God, he disciplines his children. Okay? Just like a parent who doesn't want their child 
to hurt themselves, we will discipline our children when they do things that are scary, okay? We do that, right? God isn't any different. In fact, he's better than we are at it. So he will bring you in front of the mirror, okay? It may not be a fun ride. It's probably better that you get in front of the mirror and ask him. Ask him what needs to change. Ask him what needs to happen in order for you to be persistent in good works that honor and glorify Jesus and not yourself. That's the best way to go, at least in my thinking. That's the best way to go. There is this disconnect that happens in the human heart for whatever reason between our knowing and our doing. And even though we know the right thing, sometimes the the knowing of the right thing just gets pushed to the background in our doing. We might know the right thing, but getting it done, mm, sometimes it's another story. In many ways, you could say that we are educated beyond our obedience. We're educated beyond our obedience. We know the right thing, but we don't always do the right thing. Save yourself the discipline and do the self-examination that needs to happen. Because really, it's about relationship. God wants to have this famous relationship with each and every one of you. He wants that relationship to be so famous that other people look at you and go, wow, what is different about you? What is different about your life? I want what you have. That's the kind of famous relationship he wants to have with each and every one of you. And in order to do that, we need to look at what's stored in our hearts. Look at verse 12 with me. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them, This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Basically, Paul is saying here that the written code, the law, has set us up. The rules have set us up. Pretty much set us up to fail. We were never meant to live by the rules in the first place. We were meant to live by grace. We are meant to live in a loving relationship that seeks to do those good things, not a law that forces us to do those good things. We are never going to attain righteousness by the law. The Jews had the law written on stone tablets, but they failed in moving that law from the stone tablet to the heart. On the other hand, the non-Jews succeeded because they acted out of their heart even though they didn't have the law that was written on stone to guide them. They were a law to themselves because there was this innate sense of right and wrong built into them from God. It's part of their being made in the God, God's image for their life. Paul call, calls it their conscience. Everybody know what your conscience is, right? Okay, that little, well, Disney thought it looked like Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, okay? That little voice in your head that tries to keep you on track doesn't always work real well, but it's there speaking to you anyway. In the believer's life, it's the Holy Spirit whispering to you. 
go this way, go that way. You want to avoid that. You want to come with me. There is reported that a tribe in Africa had an unusual way, an effective way, but an unusual way to test the guilt of an accused person. A group of suspects would be lined up, and the tongue of each would be touched with a hot knife. If the saliva on the tongue of the blade would sizzle, it would cause very little pain. But if the tongue was dry, then the blade would stick and create a vicious, searing burn. The tribe knew that a sense of guilt tends to make a person's mouth go dry, and a seared tongue, therefore, was taken as proof of being guilty. The making of such a dry mouth is, of course, the work of the conscience, the conscience bearing witness as to whether you're guilty or not. Is it possible to fool a test like that? Yeah, sometimes our conscience can be so dulled by our own sin that it no longer responds to what's right and wrong as it should. Some time ago it was discovered that the gross disfiguring of the extremities of a person who had leprosy was not caused by the disease itself, but actually indirectly by the disease. You see, leprosy doesn't attack the skin and make it rot away. It actually attacks the nerves. The person's legs, feet, hands, arms deteriorate because the nerves go dead and they no longer feel their extremities. And because they don't feel their extremities, they tend to hurt themselves without even knowing it. And when they do, those uncared for injuries become infected, gangrenous, resulting in the loss of limb or even the loss of life. This is what happens when our conscience becomes desensitized to our sin. We start to lose an awareness of the hurt we cause ourselves and others. And then our hearts get hardened. The idea of what Paul is talking about here, don't store those things up in your heart. Examine what's in your heart. There should be something written there, okay, that leads you into doing the right thing. The Jews struggled with this because they had the written law and they thought that was all they needed. And so they spent ages and ages developing ways to get around the law. The law was given by Moses, so it was given very early on in their history. But they decided that they wanted to live apart from the law as much as they could. So ever since Moses, their rabbis have been trying to figure out ways to get around the law to the point where they had a whole nother book, not a Bible, okay, not, not their Torah. It was called the Talmud. And the Talmud basically was an interpretation of the Torah, which was the word of God, and a way for them to get around the rules, get around God's law, so that they wouldn't have to observe the things that God asked them to observe. When you do that long enough, Folks, even as believers, when we do that long enough, when we try to figure out ways to get around what's right, even though our hearts know what's right, even though the Word of God tells us what's right, our conscience can get kind of seared, can get kind of hard. Don't let that, don't let that happen to you. It's a dangerous place to live. It takes a lot of pain to get back to a place of softness before God. And that's not what God desires for you. 
He will take you there if he has to. It is not his desire. He will stop at nothing to regain an intimate relationship with you. So it will happen. It's just not where he wants you to go. I have one last thought. The last section here of this passage, it is about what is taught. And this is kind of like taking it to the next extreme. You know, he starts about with, you know, what's stored in your heart is very personal kind of thing. And then he wants to talk, what is written? Okay, it's a little more outward. Now he's going to talk about what is taught. This is going way outward. This is taking what's in your heart, okay, what you know to be true, okay, or false, and then taking it outside to other people. Verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? Uh, by the way, that's kind of a weird one. You who abhor hate idols, do you rob temples? Robbing temples, why would that... If you, if you hate idols, what would be the problem with robbing temples? Because you're taking something that is unclean, that is defiled for yourself, okay? It is a picture of us going out into the world, folks, and grabbing what is unclean out there and bringing it into our lives what we know to be wrong, and bringing it home with us. Does that make sense? Uh, verse 23, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you even though you have the written code and circumcision. You are a lawbreaker. This is the same thing, folks, that Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day. You're blind guides. You're the blind trying to lead the blind. To have the law of God was a privilege and a responsibility. To teach the law of God was an honor. But what happens when the teacher doesn't live up to what he teaches? It's very simple. That last line, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. God's name is blasphemed among the world out there when we who have the law of God obviously don't live up to it. It's really easy to point a finger at the Jews and decry their arrogance in thinking that they were something special in and of themselves because of God's favor on them as a nation. But is it really any different for the church? Is it any different when non-believers see us behave badly? This last week, our daughter Lacey experienced just such a thing. She was doing her job at a Christian university where she works. She had to drop off some things in a classroom before the period was over. Her appearance was supposed to signal the professor that Time was almost up, and the next class of students was waiting in the hallway, ready to, to come in. This particular professor acted abominably, terribly towards Lacey. I'm not going to repeat what he said. Lacey didn't say a word. 
She came in, she did her job, she turned around and she left. Later, she had to go back to that same classroom, and this time it was just her and the professor, no students in the room. He made a comment that he was surprised that she didn't respond to his tirade earlier by cussing him out or something, which tells me that he knew how badly he acted. She told him it was no big deal that she used to teach fifth grade, so she was used to dealing with 10-year-olds. My daughter is brilliant. Then she turned around and she left him alone to think about it. Now, if it were me, I probably would have done things a little different. I had to admire that she didn't lose her calm, didn't tell him how badly he embarrassed himself in the front of his students, not to mention how badly he represented Jesus. She just calmly gave him a different perspective on his behavior and then walked away to let him think about it. You know what surprised me most about that incident? He's a professor of theology at a Christian university. He's one who assumes to teach students about God. You have to ask yourself, how does one supposedly teach that which they do not live when it comes to God? Paul's point, and he makes it very well. When we behave badly, whether it's in front of family, friends, co-workers, or anyone that knows that we're a Christian, how can we expect them to see the truth of our words if our life doesn't demonstrate the power of those words? We all make mistakes. I get it. Now and then, we all make mistakes. I do it. I understand. What you do with those blunders, though, is really important. Many years ago, I, I, Jan and I used to do Broadway-style musicals. We had a big choir and you know, a church of a couple hundred people and, and stuff. And, and my, my job in the church as a music minister was to run the music program. And so I'd direct music, and Jan would direct the drama. And, and she had this uh, lady, this cute old lady, that um, volunteered to work for me. No pay or anything like that, just an assistant. And she would keep all of Jan's notes and stuff on blocking for the stage where people were supposed to be standing and all that kind of stuff. So if anybody had a question, they could come to Diane, and she could tell them, you're supposed to stand here, because she had it all mapped out for her. She's just incredibly efficient lady, this amazingly efficient lady. Uh, I'll never forget, teaching her how to use a computer was like opening up a world of amazement to her, because you know she's old school. She didn't have computers kind of thing, and she... And, but she had a very organized mind, and so she loved it when she got to working computers. But this particular day, things were not getting started the way I wanted them to go. They weren't going well kind of thing. And here was Diana, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that. And I snapped at her. I did not do the right thing. And I knew when I did it that I hurt her. What you do with those things matters, folks. Because I later found out, after I had gone and got on my knees and repented, you know, and asked her to forgive me and asked her to, you know, keep working with us kind of thing that, you know, that was a momentary stupidity of mine kind of thing, she said she probably would never come back had I not done that. It matters, folks. 
It matters that we live up to the words. And when we do make mistakes, because we will, it matters how we handle them. That professor could have apologized to Lacey when she came back in the room. But his pride got in the way. Don't let that happen to you. Bow the knee, humble yourselves, whatever it takes to restore relationship, to fix the mess that you made. Are you tracking with me? Got it? Last thing. When you do that, when you fix the mess that you made, you will tell everyone, including yourself, exactly where your heart is. Verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And just take the Jew thing out of his. A man is a believer, okay, if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by a written code. Such a man's praise is not for men. It's from God. We are called to an authentic faith, a passionate pursuit of Jesus, a lifelong journey into a deep relationship with him. We sing that song, Deep Cries Out. Like, I like that song. We sing it almost every Wednesday night with the youth group because, well, Elijah loves the song kind of thing. And so I take requests, you know, and, and that's always a request. Deep cries out. Why? It cries out for the presence of God. It cries out for intimacy with Jesus. This is the testimony I want in my life. This is the testimony that honors and glorifies my God. An intimate relationship where I persist in good, where what's written on my heart comes out in my life, that there is integrity in my life. And when I make a mistake, when I fail, because we all do this, I handle it with the same kind of integrity and humility. Does that make sense? This is Paul's message to us. It's not always the easiest message to receive. I get that. I understand that. It kind of makes kind of a somber thing going on this morning. It's not meant to be that way. It's meant to encourage you to move deeper into Jesus so that you can enjoy the first part of what I talked about, glory, honor, and a life of legacy. Get that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. you. You are concerned about our lives. You didn't just have Jesus die for us and then say that was enough. You want us to be like Jesus. You want us to live like Jesus. You want us to live as free as he lived. You want us to live as deeply linked to you as he did. You want us to have that intimacy, that deep cries out to deep. And we're missing something if we don't have it. So, Father, I pray for us as a people that as we continue through this study in Romans, that we will get this. All of this theology that we find here is about one thing. It is about our relationship with you. It's about our heart condition. It's about our intimacy with you. And, and nothing, nothing gets to stand in the way of that. But it's our choice. We get the life we choose. Father, I pray for us as a people that we will choose glory, honor, and legacy because that, that is the gift of this life just like eternity is the gift of the next. 
In Jesus' name, amen.